Police under pressure, Rosgvardia continuing to be on the rise, and talk that Pavel Prigozhin, son of Evgeny, might be taking over Wagner. Put all these together, and what have you got? Hello, I'm Mark Galliotti, and welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow shadows. This podcast of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons like you, and also by the crisis exercise software company, Conductor. Before I start, just a couple of quick announcements. First of all, for patrons, thanks very much for all your questions, and I hope to be recording the patrons-only Q&A episode sometime this week, so keep an eye out on your mail or the patron site to know when it's dropped. Secondly, and arguably far more important, I'm recording this on Sunday the 8th of October, and of course the 7th of October was Putin's birthday. A momentous day. And of course, we, we, we all wish him everything that he deserves for the coming year. But the main point is this. He is now 71 years old. 71. 70 is generally accepted as the compulsory retirement age for Russian officials. Just saying. Anyway, on with the meat of this particular segment. So, as I talked about in the previous podcast, back in August, the Interior Minister, Vladimir Karakoltsev, said that the country had a critical, as he put it, shortage of police officers, not least because of a massive outflow, and that this would be something that could well, and indeed was already, affecting crime rates and their overall performance. The police do, after all, feel overstretched, which is actually not implausible. People often talk about how Russia is the most heavily policed, or one of the most heavily policed countries in the world. That is actually not truly accurate, especially because at least 30% of the quote-unquote police are non-police officers who just happen to be put in uniform, unlike the practices of most Western countries that, for example, would have a lot of back-end jobs and sort of trainers and such like as civilian employees. But anyway, they do feel overstretched. They certainly do feel underpaid, despite the fact that they had a 10.5% pay increase at the start of the month, which frankly has, more than anything else, just simply reflected the impact of inflation on, on their quality of life rather than anything else. And certainly... In some regions, understaffing is already as high as 30%. If one looks at the overall levels of, of the MBD, Interior Ministry's staffing, in 2019 it was 92.1%. In other words, 7.9% of establishment positions were not filled. And that's, that's not actually at all unusual. There's always a certain amount of churn, taking time to hire new staff, etc. Then... In 2020, it actually went up to, sorry, the, the staffing level went up to 92.5% because of, of a sort of surge of, of new applications and new entrants. 
but by 2021 it has fallen to 90.8%. Now that's the lowest since they actually began measuring these figures in 2012. And interestingly enough, 2022's figures were not released, which again implies that it actually had gone below the psychologically crucial 90% level. All of this has been exacerbated by a number of other factors. First of all, a purge of officers deemed pro-opposition. Now again, it's interesting, this is something that apparently Kolokoltsev and a lot of his senior officers had been very, very resistant to, but was really forced on them by the Kremlin. And to a considerable extent, forced by the FSB, that has the overall responsibility for monitoring the political reliability of, of the police. So you have a lot of officers, many of whom frankly were actually quite experienced. You need what one might think that notionally pro-opposition officers were ones who were sort of you know young and hip but no in many cases it was quite veteran figures who were not really pro-opposition what they were was opposed to the use of the police in the increased uh, crackdown on anyone saying anything negative about the government and especially once the special military operation started Veteran officers often feel, precisely because they know that they are much less dispensable, that they, they, they feel they can actually voice their minds rather more than some rookie. And that, unfortunately, did not do them any favours. What else? Mobilisation. We have seen police officers actually being swept up, even though they're not meant, police officers are not meant to be mobilised, when it comes down to it, particularly in the very chaotic early point of the first mobilisation wave and I call it the first because I imagine there will be more. Anyway, we, we, we did see some police officers being swept up in it. But more broadly, there are actually now new opportunities, higher paying opportunities, for someone to join the military or the National Guard. And on one level, this actually attracts serving officers who decide to actually transfer. But re even more important, it affects prospective officers. Remember, there's always a considerable amount of churn in any such institution. People leave, new officers are recruited. Traditionally, the police disproportionately re recruited from former military officers or military personnel. And this is what's happening now, is that they are much more likely to be either you know, staying within the military or going into the military in, in different arms or simply not leaving the military. We have a clear stop-loss policy at the moment so that actually the military is doing everything it can to not let people leave. So again, all of this is actually affecting the usual kind of recruitment pipelines of the Interior Ministry. And finally, they are overstretched because it is clear that under political pressure, they are spending far more of their time than they want to or should on investigating you know, anti-war sentiment, spreading of quote-unquote fake news, you know, this kind of stuff. Again, I think there's, there's a degree of disgruntled overstatement, but we are seeing reports in the Russian press of police officers saying that actually the majority of their time these days is spent on such operations. Well, as I said, even if that's an overstatement, nonetheless, clearly a substantial amount of their time is wasted. And so what has this meant? Well, frankly, poorer service to society so increased crime, but also generally you know, fewer officers on the beat providing public reassurance and all that kind of thing. Much more dangerously, we're seeing a resurgence of corruption and what we could call abusive policing. 
So corruption in the sense of you know, people who feel undervalued and underpaid turning to predatory ways of supplementing their income, ranging from the classic sort of traffic stop where a traffic policeman will claim that you were speeding or driving erratically or the like, and essentially allow you to pay your way out of that inconvenience, all the way through to really what we could consider protection racketeering, especially when people go to the police and have some kind of very, very serious ish issue they want to raise, and the police more are saying, if you want us to deal with it, you're going to have to pay us. And abusive policing. Police still largely operate by the so-called sticks system, which essentially means they have quotas, quotas of crimes to investigate, but also, above all, quote, quotas of cases to close. How much easier is it to just simply grab some usual suspect, beat them until they confess or tell you something that you want to hear, rather than actually doing a proper investigation? And this was one of the great sins of Soviet policing, then post-Soviet policing. It was actually genuinely being addressed and dealt with. But now all the good work that has been done is being undone. What else? Well, there's going to be an inability to find the extra police officers that are meant to be policing the occupied areas. The Interior Ministry says that by 2026 it would need 42,000 additional officers in order to police the areas of Donbass, Zaporizhia, Kherson region and such like that have been occupied now or that potentially may be occupied. Well, where are those soldiers going to, sorry, those police officers going to come from? The honest answer is at present there's no real answer except by or taking officers away from regions that are already under-policed. Desperation to find new officers also means that entry standards are being lowered. In some cases, this is about overlooking certain sort of worrying, if not red, but at least there are sprightly orange flags in their resume or their psychological profiles. In some cases, it means turning a blind eye to the uh, physical requirements of the job. And we've even had the fact that the age limit for enlisting has also been raised. It used to be that you couldn't join as a, a private, in other words, an ordinary police officer, if you were over 35. Now you can be anything up to 50 years old and still join the police. Nonetheless, there's still a very high turnover. You know, a lot of officers, frankly, are just serving two to three years before leaving. So you put all the money and effort into training them up and then shortly thereafter they take that whether it's into the private security realm and i'm not talking about mercenaries like wagner i'm talking about the akhraniki sort of standing outside shopping malls and the like or just simply into the civilian sector generally now when kolokoltsev raised this issue back in august it clearly was taken as a signal and so we've had a lot of discussion now particularly in the local press about both the specific local problems that they face, but also how they themselves are coping with, with these wider sort of general issues. Take, for example, Tatarstan. There, the head of the personnel directorate of the local interior ministry said, I can say that there are a lot of people who want to go on a mission to the territory of the special military operation, three to four times more than the order. In other words, three to four times more than the quota they were given for having to send people. 
I know that our former employees who've already retired, I personally know of about 200 people, come to the Voyenkom app military draft office and are reinstated as military personnel and volunteer for the special operational zone. So in other words, you know, again, as I said, what we're seeing is a, a lot of a drain of often the best police officers, certainly the ones who are most uh, physically capable, are moving into military service just simply because there's just a lot of money involved, as well potentially as, as the prestige and, and, and such like. This is an issue that we've known about for a long time. This is an issue that Kolokoltsev has been waving in, <laughs> whenever he has the opportunity in front of Putin for years now. Now, it's not just that Kolokoltsev is not an especially powerful member, shall we say, of the security bloc. There is an element here of chicken and egg. It's not just simply, well, Kolokoltsev doesn't have the muscle to raise this issue to actually the president's agenda and have it dealt with. It's precisely because the police and policing in general, when it comes to the non-political variety, is just not important enough for, for Putin. That makes Kolokoltsev not very important and means that essentially the interior ministry is regarded not as a security agency, but as one more of the technocratic ministries that should just shut up and do their jobs. So basically nothing is being done with implications that actually are really beginning to actually affect the country as a whole. And I'll come on to that in a moment. But, as I say, I want to compare that with what's going on with Roskvardia. Now, we had, right after the Wagner mutiny, this promise that they were going to be given artillery and tanks. This was always a bit of a vaporware offer in the future, because at the moment there is not exactly a large supply of spare artillery and tanks for their, their use. It was a, a political statement, in some ways a warning and a sign that in fact the Roskvardia was, was really going to be a very serious internal security force. But it may well have perhaps been a sign not just of its further remilitarization, but also it transpires its move into the whole private military company slash mercenary business. After all, remember, if it could possibly be used in the future to incorporate or set up mercenary forces for the use in Ukraine. Mercenary forces that would obviously need to have heavy equipment and artillery and the like. It needs to have the permission to be able to field them. This was after all one of the problems for Wagner. That everything, heavy, all the heavy equipment they had was in effect on loan from the Defence Ministry. And in due course the Defence Ministry could and did claim it back. So I think now in hindsight, in part, this is about giving the Roskvardia the right to have its own artillery, tanks, etc. So that it can field mercenary forces without the uh, influence of and dependence upon the defence ministry. Because then in September, we had the United Russia deputy Alexander Hinstein who was the former ideological advisor to National Guard head General Zolotov, and frankly one of his very, very few real political allies. Anyway, he, with some colleagues, I think frankly, especially him, submitted a bill to the State Duma that would allow Roskvardia to recruit volunteers into what are called special formations. Now, essentially, this would give the National Guard, the same rights as the Ministry of Defence, 
to set up territorial defence forces, which are basically territorial mercenary formations, and other such units. Inevitably, this led to speculation that what was left of Wagner was going to be folded into the National Guard rather than the military. After all, this had followed a report from Anastasia Kashevarova, who was a pro-Kremlin journalist, but more, more importantly, a former aide to State Duma speaker Vyacheslav Valodin, so she does have a tendency to, to hear some inside stuff. Anyway, she wrote that uh, Evgeny Prigozhin's son Pavel had met with Zolotov precisely about how they could work together to reconstitute Wagner in a way that would keep it out of the grips of the Ministry of Defence. And this very much combines with suggestions that the 25-year-old Pavel Prigozhin has taken over Wagner as his father's inheritor. Uh, he's not the oldest child, but he's the only son. He's, he's the middle child of three, but he has two sisters, and Prigozhin being Prigozhin apparently sort of wanted him to be his inheritor. Well, maybe, though I do have some distinct doubts as to whether or not this is a serious thing. And first of all, we always have to remember this bizarre situation that technically under Russian law, Wagner does not exist. After all, mercenary organisations are still illegal. So although everyone talks about Wagner and Putin meets with Wagner field commanders and the like, it does not actually exist in law. And why that's worth dwelling on is precisely that it does create all kinds of interesting opportunities if people wanted to block Pavel Prigozhin from actually inheriting Wagner. Because they can just simply say, well, <laughs> you inherit the legal possessions of Yevgeny Prigozhin, but that's it. Perhaps more importantly, one can question whether he really has what it takes. He has the, the family name, of course, and he has certainly a kind of abstract legitimacy of being his father's inheritor. He also, according to the official record anyway, did his national service and then actually served in Wagner in both Syria and Ukraine. Still, I mean, when it comes down to it, this is a 25-year-old who basically everything he owns, and he has a very extensive uh, portfolio of, of properties and uh, businesses, but anyway, everything he owns was given to him by daddy. We have this classic model of the, the hard scrabble entrepreneur who makes it, and then the arguably not quite so hard scrabble kid who is then handed it. Up to this point, there's been no real indication that, that Pavel Prigozhin had some kind of totemic importance to the Wagner fighters. So it's not impossible that, as some people have speculated, Pavel is just going to be a front. And there's been suggestions that he's under the influence either of Mikhail Vatanin, head of Wagner's security service, or else Anton Elizarov, field commander who goes by the codename of Lotus. One could also wonder whether he actually would truly want to be a cog in Putin's military machine, given what Putin said, after all, about his dad's death at the, the Valdai summit. I'm sure everyone who's listening sort of knows this, but you know, Putin basically suggested that Prigozhin had died because of booze, drugs and a grenade. What he said was, I know there must be a question hanging in the air as to what happened to the company's top management. The investigative committee, that, as we all know, peerless source of impartial investigation. Anyway, the in investigative committee head reported to me just the other day 
that hand grenade fragments had been found in the bodies of those killed in the plane crash. And he went on to snidely say, Unfortunately, tests on traces of alcohol or drugs in the blood of those killed were not taken. Although we know that after the events we all know about, in other words, the mutiny, the FSB found not only 10 billion in cash, but also five kilos of cocaine in Wagner's St. Petersburg office. So essentially he's suggesting that Prigozhin and his people were you know, drugged up and playing with hand grenades. Now, look, this is pretty patent nonsense, not least because the suggestion is also that, you know, that, that, that they were boozing. Prigozhin and indeed his senior commander Utkin were known to actually not drink. And indeed, Prigozhin was always very clear on the fact that, you know, although the private jet he flew on, usually it's a little haven of indulgence for the, the rich corporate flyers, but there had to be no alcohol on the plane when he flew, because as far as he's concerned, these long plane journeys were opportunities to get business done. And the thought that they happened to be juggling hand grenades at high altitude is also pretty implausible. And I can't help think, and I know this is a bit of a sidebar, but I can't help think that when Putin said this, he wasn't expecting to be believed. And in some ways, that was the point. This is very much what the Russians call Vranyo. The, the lie that is ridiculous and implausible. But the whole point of it is that you know that you're being lied to, but that you have to go along with it. In that respect, it's actually more than anything else about power. It's not about trying to convince you of something. It is about enforced submission and moral compromise. It is about essentially saying, I will say something that I know is absolute nonsense. But I also know that you either cannot dare to challenge it, or even if you do want to challenge it, there is nothing you can do about it. So actually, this is simply about a performative expression of power. Or at least that, that's my take. Anyway, back to the point. So, you know, basically Putin has just said that, oh, by the way, Pavel, your dad, you know, essentially either blundered or committed suicide by being a, a, you know, a druggie or a drunk and doing something deeply stupid with a hand grenade at high altitude. I don't know. Whether or not Pavel or the National Guard are involved, though, we have a, yet another complexity in the whole story about Wagner's future, with the news that Wagner veteran Andrei Troshev, known by his call sign Sedoy, or, or Grey Hair, is now at the Ministry of Defence. He's having personal meetings with Putin, which is not a usual thing, and he's heading up the Ministry of Defence's use of what are called volunteer units in Ukraine. Now, it's worth remembering, um, you know, Troshev, who... I mean, he was a soldier, he fought in Afghanistan and I believe Chechnya. He then was a member of Sober, the police kind of special armed rapid response units that then in due course would, would be rolled into the National Guard. But he was the guy whom Putin had suggested take over Wagner in that meeting that he had with, with Prigozhin and his field commanders right after the mutiny an initiative that Prigozhin blocked. So, you know, one could ask, who has the last laugh now? But trying to pull all this together, what, what do I actually, what does it mean? Well, first of all, it makes it absolutely clear that policing is still not a priority compared with public order. 
that the capacity to crack skulls is much more important to ensure that people are not mugged. Secondly, that the Roscovardia is still actively empire-building. The Roscovardia, on the one level, is absolutely a, a public security institution. But it is also clearly a very, very aggressive economic actor as much as anything else. It has, for example, used its role as being both a supplier of private security through FGOP Ochrana, which is its private security arm, but also as the institution which gets to monitor the private security sector and, in other words, certify other companies. Well, it uses that precisely to lean on its competition and force them to, in effect, get bought out by the Roscovardia. So Ochrana has expanded in size dramatically precisely by basically taking over or just simply squeezing out of the sector all of its political rivals, not because they're necessarily bad security companies, but because the Roscovardia can, can find all kinds of infractions. Well, We've seen this happen more generally now, and we're now, I would suggest, seeing this also happening within the military company, mercenary sector as well. I remember once talking to a Russian defence journalist who had had some exposure to Viktor Zolotov, the head of the Roskvardia, and he was saying, look, the real problem is this. Yes, of course, Zolotov comes from a secret service background. He was a professional bodyguard and such like. But the main problem is this. Zolotov has spent way, way too much time around the inordinately rich people in Putin's inner circle. And as a result, he thinks of everything as business rather than service. So when he got to set up Roscovardia, he immediately thought of this as in a, a monetizable opportunity. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Of course, Zolotov has an absolute stake in keeping the status quo. He survives because of Putin's patronage. But given that at the moment there is no immediate challenge, this is one of the reasons why he was pretty much panicked by the Wagner mutiny, but anyway, that was dealt with. There's no immediate challenge, and when there isn't an immediate challenge, he looks at how he can basically make more money for himself and for his institution. And I, I do think that that is true, because we're seeing at a time in which you know, Russia is at war, and yet we have all this squabbling over who gets to control the mercenaries, who gets to control their own mercenaries, and such like. And that leanway leads to the third point I'd make, that Wagner is not yet totally gone. Yes, in, on, on one level it is over. There is not going to be an institution with the autonomy that Wagner had that survives. But nonetheless, because of this tug of war, Wagner or some post-Wagner, you know, Tchaikovsky or whatever institution, is still alive and well. But the key thing is this. What this demonstrates to me is that Putin has not learned the lesson of the mutiny. I've really been stunned by Putin's apparent inability to learn lessons. Whether it's in terms of learning the lessons about what kind of a country Ukraine is, whether it's learning the lessons of not trying to micromanage the war effort and particularly force his commanders into launching quixotic and wasteful military operations, offensive operations, or the fact that he is still applying, shall I say, his court politics 
to security at a time of war. You know, Putin has done incredibly well staying in power for 23 years to the age of 71 by precisely practicing the, the arts of divide and rule within the elite, creating all kinds of overlapping interests, I would say designed to actually set everyone at everyone else's throats, which means that he has this pivotal position as the, the arbiter of all these disputes. And that has worked in politics in an often wasteful but nonetheless politically successful way. It absolutely is not working on the battlefield. And what we have seen is, despite the fact that it has become dysfunctional time and time again, and that was part of the key dysfunctionality that led to the, the Wagner mutiny, he still allows this to continue, even after it blew up in his face once. And it's not that I therefore think it's going to lead to a new mutiny, but nonetheless it has demonstrated, I would say, how moribund Putin and the Putin system has become. And actually, as a result, how it is undermining its own prospects. Policing is not just about providing, shall we say, a service to the masses. It is crucial for the effective working of society, and perhaps more importantly, society's sense that the state is both functional and, in its own way, cares about them. Now, look, it might sound silly in, in this context. You know, does the state care about you? A little bit too touchy-feely. But the point is, it does matter. There is always, even in an authoritarian regime, there is a social contract. And in some ways, with an authoritarian regime, the social contract is that much more stark. You know, democratic regimes have their own legitimacy. It's more or less, well, look, mates, you voted for this government, so of course you've got to put up with it. Authoritarian regimes can't say that, so essentially they have to have an offer. And part of that offer is usually exactly that you, you give up a certain amount of autonomy and freedom, but in return you get predictability, you get a certain grandeur, and you also above all get security. Well, most people are not really feeling that, and will actually feel that even less over time. So even if one just wants to look at it in very, very ruthlessly utilitarian, authoritarian terms, not prioritising policing, allowing policing, in fact, once again to decay, is not just inevitably raising the, the spectres of the wild 90s, the period that, in a way, Putin was meant to be able to juxtapose himself against, but generally speaking, undermines people's faith that this is a state that is deserving of their not so much support, but acquiescence. Secondly, treating even military forces as an economic asset that can be fought over, and indeed that should be fought over, undermines the unity of command, obviously, creates absolutely needless tensions between, but also within institutions. I mean, what's quite interesting at the moment is it's really not clear whether the rise of Troshev actually represents a victory for the military as a whole, or whether it is in fact part of also a rivalry between the main military apparatus and the general staff and GRU, military intelligence, which up to now has had kind of the, the, the point role in, in dealing with mercenary or, or organisations. It's quite interesting that what we have seen is Deputy Defence Minister Yunus Bek Yakurov travelling around Africa really to reassure existing Wagner customers that, in terms of their own experience, nothing will change, but that the Ministry of Defence is now underwriting 
the mercenary organisations rather than Prigozhin's Concord group. Yevkurov is quite an interesting character and actually a pretty good choice for the role of, shall I say, defence ministry diplomat. But the key thing is this, there's increasing suggestions that Yevkurov is deeply angered by Gru's failures with Wagner and the arrogance that has been demonstrated. And although Gru is not uh, in any way formally out of favour at the moment, nonetheless there does seem to be a push from within the defence ministry structures to actually ensure that, that Gru does not have the, the primary responsibility of dealing with mercenaries. So, I mean, this is a very much, I think, an emerging story, so watch this space. But it demonstrates the degree to which actually what we are seeing is constant struggling over what are, frankly, assets within the security apparatus, which are every bit as vicious and every bit as complex as the raiding over assets that we're seeing within the civilian sector. And look, when it's a bank or a property development or a coal mine, arguably that doesn't matter so much to the core security of the state. But this is a, a government which is at war, even by, by its own admission, at war not just with Ukraine, but in effect with the whole West. And yet it's still permitting this kind of internecine bloodletting over who controls what. And we're also seeing similar processes, which I'm going to talk about in a future podcast, going on within the intelligence and security community. So all of this means, well, I was going to say that Putin is an old dog that can't learn new tricks. But frankly, I like dogs. So instead, let's just say that he is clearly the leopard who can't change his spots, even if they are liver spots. So... That's my, my first point. I wanted to talk about the fact that, as I say, the potential fate of Wagner undermines the degree to which this, this system is really no longer learning lessons. And that may, well, who knows, come down to the fact that the guy at the top is, is getting on. Which, of course, means once again, let's turn to the question of succession. And after the break, we'll have the next in my little episodic series looking at and profiling potential successors. And in this case, it'll be Dmitry Nikolaevich Kozak. Just the usual mid-episode reminder that you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. Its corporate partner and sponsor is Conductor, which provides software for crisis exercises in hybrid warfare, counterterrorism, civil affairs and the like. But you can also support the podcast yourself by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks depending on their tier, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the episode. So, if we're looking at not so much people for the future, but the kind of people who could potentially step in if Putin didn't wake up tomorrow... Maybe Dmitry Kozak is worth thinking about. As I say, at, he's 64 at the moment, so in some ways he's, he's a now rather than a future politician. But the deputy head of the presidential administration, I would say he's the kind of compromise candidate who could emerge from a contested succession process. Especially if you're looking for someone who can do deals and handle problems, and post-Putin Russia will surely have a lot of them especially, especially as relates to Ukraine. So let me little look at what would make Kozak a potential candidate.
candidate. First of all, he is a member of the St. Petersburg, let's call them, gang. Like Putin, he did law, he read law at Leningrad State University, although he's younger than Putin, so they, they didn't overlap. But they did absolutely overlap in the St. Petersburg city administration, where the two men worked together in the 1990s. And Putin clearly regarded him high enough to bring him to Moscow when he was then on the rise. And Cossack became a key member in his early presidential team, but also headed up Putin's 2004 re-election campaign. This is clearly a man who Putin trusts. But it's not just Putin. He's also demonstrated that he can actually work with the Siloviki, the, the, the men of force of, of the, of the sort of power agencies. It helps that he's served in the Spetsnaz Special Forces from 1976 to 78. And then after university, he worked for a while in the Leningrad Prosecutor's Office in 1985 to 89. So, you know, You've got the military and the police law enforcement boxes ticked. But he also worked very closely with both the military and particularly the FSB in his roles that I'll talk about in a moment in the North Caucasus and the Donbass. He's not one of them. He's not their guy. But on the other hand, he's the kind of person whom they might feel comfortable working with. So I think this is, this is what's going to be crucial. It, you know, odds are the successor will be a civilian but a civilian who can get the, uh, the mark of approval of the security and military. Above all, he has really strong technocrat credentials. Cossack is the kind of guy who's sent to fix problems and to fix them in, shall we say, as unflashy a way as possible. In 2003, he well, it's usually framed as, you know, trying to solve the conflict between Transnistria and Moldova. Um, his Cossack memorandum would have solved this problem to a degree by giving the Russian proxies of Transnistria and Gagauzia the capacity to veto any policy that, that Moldova took. So perhaps it's not surprising that that didn't work out. But, you know, let's put it this way, it, it, it got a damn sight further than some people might have expected. Then, though, he was made the presidential plenipotentiary to the Southern Federal District. And Southern Federal District, that basically means the North Caucasus. He was there 2004 to 2007. So essentially clearing up the mess that was created by the Second Chechen War and trying to find some way of working with the new Kadyrov, but pre-Ramzan, under, you know, initially under his father, um, new sort of Chechenized administration. As I said, he basically is, he's a cleaner. He's, he's the guy you come, who, who you bring in after a mess has been created. He was briefly regional development minister and then deputy prime minister from 2008 to 2020. Again, 12 years as deputy prime minister. That's, that's pretty impressive. And in that time, again, he demonstrated that he was the kind of go-to guy for major projects. He was, for example, the, the main coordinator for the 2014 Sochi Winter Olympics. And you know, was generally deemed to have done an extremely good job. But an extremely good job measured, shall we say, by classic Putinist metrics. What is a successful event? Well, it's one that you know is carried off and looks good and, and everything works, which certainly did in Sochi, at the same time with enough kickbacks siphoned to the people who matter. 
And I think this is a key thing. You know, in, in Kozak works with the grain of the system. He sees his job not as to change the fundamentals, but essentially to accept the basic premises of the system, but to make that work as effectively as possible. Much the same, after all, was true of the Kirch Bridge construction that, again, he oversaw. This extraordinary bridge to Crimea was indeed built. Well, we'll see how, how well and how long it lasts. But anyway, it was built. It was built in rapid time. But at the same time, the Rotenberg brothers, Putin's childhood friends, had the right opportunities to enrich themselves to a considerable degree. So getting things done, getting people paid off. He manages to balance that. In 2020, he replaced Vladislav Surkov, who is arguably the epitome of flashy solutions to problems, as the chief representative to the Donbass. And he was trying to make the best, again, of a bad job, which I think basically more or less summarises his, his whole career. Uh, he was involved in brokering prisoner exchanges, for example, trying to get the Lugansk and Donetsk, uh, quote-unquote, People's Republic's economies onto a sounder footing so that they were less of a drain on the federal treasury. Because after all, actually, Ukraine matters to him because he was born there. He was born in Kirovograd region of what was central Soviet Ukraine. And I would su suspect, that, or suggest rather, that he has a much better understanding of Ukraine and Ukraine's identity. It's worth noting that around the time of the invasion, and different sources, some say just before, some say just after, anyway, he had provisionally secured a deal with Kyiv that would have guaranteed that Ukraine would not join NATO, which after all was a key Russian demand. But Putin decided it didn't go far enough. Putin was convinced he knew better, was convinced that actually he could do much more with Ukraine, and he expanded his war aims. So really one would suggest that actually Kozak had done what Putin wanted him to do, only to see that deal torpedoed because Putin got greedy. And although on the very first day of the Russian invasion in February 22, it was Kozak who rang Andriy Yermak, who's uh, Zelensky's main aide and chief of staff, telling him that, look, it was time for the Ukrainian surrender. Yermak swore at him and, and hung up. Nonetheless, although he did that, it, he was, it does seem, opposed to the operation. And in fact, we've had from multiple sources the fact that, and obviously this wasn't captured on camera, but at that fateful televised Security Council meeting, Kozak actually spoke out against an invasion. And it's worth noting that since then, and this corroborates, I would suggest, those accounts, he has essentially been pushed out of Ukraine policy. After all, you know, why would one want anyone who actually knows anything about Ukraine involved in Ukraine policy? That is not the late Putinist way. So here we have a consummate political insider who has you know, worked in both the presidential administration and also the government, who has international experience of trying to deal with all kinds of crises, who also has been involved in domestic crises, as well as mega projects. A workaholic, someone who's able to work with high-level corruption, but he's not that venal himself. I mean, look, 
by the standards of Putin's Russia. I'm certainly not calling him a abstemious saint of the of the Kremlin. And with the perhaps perverse political advantage that while Putin himself still continues to seem to like and respect him, many in his immediate circle, in the boss's immediate circle, really don't. So the interesting thing is that means that Cossack can at once claim Putin's mantle and also discard it. And again, I think that's going to be really important in a successor. You want someone who is not going to terrify the current insiders. Because after all, you know, otherwise it more or less drives them into trying to blackball that individual. But you also want someone who is able to demonstrate that they're independent enough that they're not just simply going to be a, a sort of mindless zombie continuing in, in the same path. What else? Well, Kozak has demonstrated that he can actually get on with people. He has the nickname of the Cheshire Cat, Cheshirsky Kot, precisely because of his, his constant smile. But more to the point, you know, do deals, reach kind of pragmatic agreements with people who may well not actually be his, his mates, not actually be necessarily ideologically predisposed towards him. He's a technocrat problem solver who can nonetheless get on with the Siloviki, and he is someone who can genuinely say, Ukraine was not my war. Russia could do worse. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. <laughs>